0: Good to see everybody here this morning. The only announcement I have is that we're still looking for volunteers to help out in the nursery. And I've got a suspicion the nursery is growing, so we need uh, more volunteers. And this this isn't to teach, just to help out with the crowd control. Before we begin our worship service this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're indeed grateful that we live in a nation where we have the freedom to gather together to freely study your word, that we have the freedom to freely proclaim your word. Father, we thank you that we live in a nation where there's still a vast majority of people who honor your word and who are still uh, in one way or another hoping to uh, or at least studying the Word, worshiping you, and are in recognition that there is uh, a divinely revealed Word of God. Uh, many times it does not seem that way in this nation, but there are at least theoretically many believers who, who affirm your existence, affirm the inspiration of, the, of your Word, and honor it by gathering together on Sunday mornings to study and hear the teaching of your word, that they might be refreshed by it. Now, Father, as we gather together today to study your word, pray that we might be teachable, that we might be able to focus and concentrate on all that we do, that all that we do may honor and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For the past several months, we have been reading through the 119th Psalm, which is a psalm of declarative praise for the Word of God. Again and again, I have pointed out the different words that are used in this psalm, which focus on the many different aspects of the Bible, the Scriptures, as the Word of God. Words such as, for example, in this passage, though in English we have the word, Word, the English word word used in both verse 169 and in verse 170. They are different, uh, words in the, uh, Hebrew. So that there are seven different Hebrew words used again in this stanza. We'll begin our reading in verse 169 and read down through 176. Today we finish Psalm 119 let me let my cry come before you o lord give me understanding according to your word let my supplication come before you deliver me according to your word my lips shall utter praise for you teach me your statutes my tongue shall speak of your word for all your commandments are righteousness let your hand become my help for i have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live, and it shall praise you, and let your judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches us that at the instant of salvation, every single believer receives the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. When we are in fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit uh, works to mature us, to develop our spiritual growth, to guide and direct us. When we sin, we're out of fellowship, and that ministry is quenched, or uh, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, the re- means to recovery is to simply uh, confess, to admit, to acknowledge our sins to Him. And at that instant, Scripture says that we are uh, not only forgiven of those sins, but of all sins. Fellowship is restored, the Spirit's sanctifying ministries recovered, and we can continue to grow and advance in our spiritual life. So before we begin, we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, ready to study the Word, ready to focus and concentrate, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're indeed grateful that you have given us your Word, that down through the centuries... You have revealed your will to us through the prophets and apostles and that it has been recorded and preserved for us so that we know precisely what you have revealed to us. And that this revelation is not only complete but sufficient and it provides that which we need to know in every area of life. It is designed to not only inform us about our fallen condition as sinners but your perfect solution at the cross. But beyond that, it addresses every other issue in life, gives us a framework for viewing family life, viewing finances, looking at uh, politics, economics, government. Uh, It gives us information about history, both what you have done in the past and what you will do in the future. And as we study these future things, we are to be motivated, encouraged, strengthened, knowing that we have a confident expectation, a future hope that is certain and secure. Now, Father, as we continue our study of these future things, we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged by them, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Not long ago, I was talking to somebody, and they just found out I was a pastor, and so they asked me, what kind of pastor are you? Are you one of those motivational pastors like Joel Osteen or some of these others? And I said, no, not really, but I do believe in motivation, but I am a pastor of a Bible church, and we believe the motivation comes from the Word of God, and that when we study the Word of God, and we understand what God has done for us, then that is to motivate us to live for Him. In the Word of God, we're also told about where we're headed, and that's part of the reason we study prophecies, because prophecy tells us with certainty where things are going, and it is to challenge us and motivate us to be ready for the lord's return now, the interesting thing about Christians is that we tend to get a little off kilter, just like most other folks do at times and and whenever you study prophecy, some people just get a little bit off center and we also know that when things are going on in the Middle East like they are right now, and you have a war going on between Israel and anybody, that people start digging around in their Bible to try to figure out where we are on a prophetic timeline. So I thought that we would begin on a light note this morning, and we would take some time if the slide works, there we go, and we would make sure that we weren't obsessed with Bible prophecy. We're going to have the top ten ways to know if you are obsessed with Bible prophecy, The number ten way that you can know if you're obsessed with Bible prophecy is that you use the left-behind books as a devotional reading. And the number nine reason you're obsessed with Bible prophecy is that you get goosebumps when you hear a trumpet. (laughs) The number eight reason that you know you're obsessed with Bible prophecy is you believe the term church fathers refers to (laughs) Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye. Now, the people who aren't laughing are the people who aren't at all interested in Bible prophecy. Number seven reason you're obsessed with Bible prophecy is you believe that there is an original Greek and Hebrew text with Schofield's notes. The sixth reason you know you're obsessed with Bible prophecy is you can name more signs of the times than you can commandments. The number five reason you refuse a tax refund check because the amount comes to... 666. Now, we laugh at that, but I have a friend of mine who has a ministry related to prophecy, and when he moved to where he lives, the last three digits in his zip code were 666, and people wouldn't were afraid to send him any mail or anything, so he had to get a post office box and another zip code. The number four reason you know that you're obsessed with Bible prophecy is barcode scanners make you nervous. <laughs> The number three reason you know that you're obsessed with Bible prophecy is you talk your church into adapting the 60s pop song, Up, Up, and Away, as a Christian hymn. And the number two reason you're obsessed with Bible prophecy is you eat dessert first and you never buy green bananas. And the number one reason, where's the drum roll? You always leave the top down on your convertible in case the rapture (laughs) happens. Okay, well, all kidding aside, what we are studying is the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, there's a lot of interesting artwork that's been done over the years. I've been looking for years, not this one, but one like this that was on the Dallas-Texas freeway system right around downtown and there were car wrecks everywhere so there was a mural done of that i think at Dallas Bible college we've been studying revelation 3:10 now we're not through with the section in revelation that deals with the current church age that's revelation 2 and 3 and the seven letters to the seven churches but we're getting close And when we come to the end of chapter 3, then that's the period when the rapture occurs, somewhere between chapter 3 and the events at the beginning of chapter 4. But chapter 3, verse 10, gives us insight into the future. There, the church of Philadelphia is promised, as we are. I also will keep you from the hour of trial. Hour of trial is a technical term for the tribulation. "...which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth." And throughout the book of Revelation, this term for earth dwellers is virtually a synonym for unbelievers during the tribulation period. So this gives us something, a little indication of something we'll see later this morning, and that is that one of the purposes for the tribulation is to test unbelievers. It is a discipline for unbelievers. The phrase there will keep, that is translated will keep you from the hour of trial translates a Greek preposition that we have seen, uh, ek, and it doesn't mean out from within as if they're inside the tribulation, believers going through the tribulation somehow supernaturally protected within the tribulation, but it is the idea that they are outside of this time period and never enter into the time period. They are protected from Uh, entering into the hour of trial. Now, how is it that church-age believers are kept from the hour of trial? Well, that is the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture. So we've asked two questions that we're uh, addressing these weeks. The first is, what is the rapture? And the second question is, when is the rapture? We haven't quite concluded our study of what is the rapture, but this morning we will finish that and begin our study of when is the rapture so we ask this question what is the rapture and we have to define it and our definition is that the rapture is the resurrection of all dead church age believers and the translation i changed that one word from last time the translation of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age before the tribulation begins. Now, the church age is the age in which we are now living. It began on the day of Pentecost, approximately AD 33, and it ends with this event. This is the next event on the timeline of biblical prophecy. And as we've studied, when we studied the imminency of the rapture, it is an event that has no signs that precede it. It can happen at any time moment. Paul expected it in the first century. Believers down through the church age have expected it in their lifetime. I know of a number of men who have specialized in the academic study of biblical eschatology who expected it to happen in their lifetime and are now with the Lord. The encouragement or challenge we should receive from this is not only that the Lord could come back tonight or tomorrow or this week, but... There are many other ways in which the Lord could take us to be with Him. We could be killed in an automobile accident on the way home. We could suddenly discover that we have a fatal disease and have only two or three months to live. Any number of things can happen where the Lord would take us home to be with Him. And the question is are we ready? Are we living today in light of the any moment coming of Christ? Are we living today in light of eternity? So this study is not just something that is academic. Now, the key passage that we, where we find this, the uh, explanation of the rapture, is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 and following, where Paul says, "We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who fall asleep." This is a term, a euphemism used in the Bible for believers who die it's not the doctrine of soul sleep it is simply they're absent from the body face to face with the lord and death is not a permanent or permanent status we do not want you to be ignorant brethren about those who fall asleep that you may not grieve like the rest that is unbelievers who have no hope we have a hope a confident expectation that jesus is coming for us that makes a distinction between believers and unbelievers at the time of death For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, that is, dead believers, those who have gone before. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. The slides got messed up because somebody rebooted my computer for me. That's okay. Um, so we may have several slides that have problems this morning. First uh, Thess 4.16, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then, in verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. This is the key word here, Uh, The Greek word is harpazo. It was translated rapturo in the Latin, which is where we get the word rapture, to be caught up to be with the Lord in the clouds. There we meet the Lord in the air, and verse 18, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Notice how this whole section, this tremendous doctrinal Section is framed in the context of comfort and encouragement. That is a purpose for studying prophecy all the way through Scripture. Today we have, as I facetiously pointed out with our little uh, top ten reasons that you know you're obsessed with biblical prophecy at the beginning, is that people get so caught up in studying biblical eschatology that they forget its purpose. They think the purpose is so that we can figure out where we are. On the timeline, that we can do uh, newspaper exegesis and, and all of those kinds of things that are really a uh, sort of a perversion of the study of biblical prophecy. But if you look at the books in the Bible that really emphasize future things Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation they are written to believers who are. About to go through incredibly difficult times in history. In the Old Testament, Isaiah focused on the uh, uh, going out in the fifth cycle of discipline in 586 B.C. under when the Babylonians invaded and destroyed uh, the temple in 586 B.C. Also, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah all focused on that. So their the, their emphasis on future events was to give comfort to Israel that God had not forgotten them, even though they would be destroyed as a nation, removed from the land, the temple would be destroyed, even though God's presence was physically removed from the temple during that time, nevertheless, God would not forget His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there would be a future restoration and a future uh, regathering of the people to the land, and there would be a future of glory just as God had always promised. So the study of prophecy and the revelation of future things has always been given by God in the context of comfort and encouragement so that when we go through times of either national crisis, worldwide calamity, or personal adversity, we know that god has a plan that he is going to bring to completion and even though things may look bad in the near future there is certainty in god's plan so the doctrine of the rapture is designed for comfort we also looked at some other passages 1 corinthians 15:52 tells us that when the rapture occurs it will be in a moment in the blink of an eye this is the greek word atomos where we get our english word atom and it refers to the smallest indivisible particle particle man can know about the blink of an eye is takes place in 1/1000th one of a second so one minute will be here the next 1/1000th one of a second we won't and that is the rapture now we come to our next question when is the rapture When exactly is this going to take place? And it may surprise some of you or some of you may not be aware that there are uh, sound biblical scholars in other areas who come to different views on the timing of the rapture. And this is because they approach the Scripture from different presuppositions. And I believe that part of the reason that they uh, disagree with uh, a pre-trib rapture is because they come to the Scriptures without being consistent in the application of literal interpretation of the Bible. Once you start shifting in certain areas away from a literal interpretation of the Scripture, then you will lose consistency and you will begin to get into allegorization, spiritualization of Scripture, and that will cause any number of problems. So we're going to answer the question today, next week, when is the rapture? Now... Before we start talking about this, we're going to have to set the stage a little bit because I recognize that there are some of you uh, for whom this study is not new, and the vocabulary that is used here is fairly familiar. But there are many of you who are not that familiar with the vocabulary that is used In talking about future things and talking about what theologians refer to as eschatology, that is the theological branch, uh, that deals with the study of future things. And so we have to take some time to make sure everybody understands, uh, foundational vocabulary. I learned this lesson as a pastor some years ago when I had, uh, my good friend Tommy Ice come to Preston City and teach on, on prophecy. And he did, he did a great job, and he went through in detail all the different areas and types of viewpoints and everything, and then about a year later, Ron Merriman was up for a conference over at uh, North Stonington Bible Church, and Ron was teaching on basically the same subject, and one lady in my church who had been you know, a faithful student of the Word for well over 20 years came up after she had heard heard uh, Ron teach on this subject, and having heard this subject taught for at least 20 times, she said, I finally think I understand the difference between premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. So if I recognize that if people do not use this kind of terminology on a day-to-day basis, that uh, we have to go over it a little bit to make sure everybody understands the terminology. When we look at the broad scope of biblical, what the Bible says about the future, the broad scope of God's plan for the ages, there are three broad views that that have been taught down through the church age. The first view, both in time and in accuracy, is premillennialism. This was clearly the view of the early church. In the early church, they called it kiliasm. C-H-I-L-I-A-S-M from the Greek word for a thousand. We use the word uh, millennial to describe the 1,000-year period based on the Latin word milli for 1,000. So premillennialism simply means that something's going to happen pre or before the millennium. And that is the second coming of Jesus Christ so we would chart it out this way we're now in the church age the church age is followed by the tribulation now not every premillennialist believes in a pre-trib rapture there are some premillennialists who believe that the rapture occurs at different times and that's the subject of the next set of slides we're just talking about the relationship of the second coming of christ to the coming uh, kingdom to the uh, kingdom of god the kingdom of christ so premillennialism is the view that the second coming of Christ occurs before the millennium, and the millennium is understood as a literal one thousand year period that begins with His second coming and ends with a rebellion led by Satan. Satan is uh, in the uh, uh, bottom, is in chains in the bottomless pit at this time, and he is released at the end of the millennium, where there he leads a revolution. Against the reign of Christ, and all unbelievers are destroyed, and he's sent to the lake of fire. Then we have eternity. That's premillennialism. Then we have something called ah millennialism. Now, whoever coined this word just got was linguistically challenged, because millennialism is based on a Greek, on a on a Latin root, milli. And the negative prefix, a, is a Greek prefix. So he's mixing up Greek and Latin to come up with this new word. millennialism means no millennium, basically no literal uh, thousand-year kingdom. So it's charted this way. We're now in the present church age. The church age is viewed as a spiritual form of the kingdom. Uh, The church is the messianic kingdom, and the kingdom is no longer a literal 1,000-year kingdom. It is merely a spiritual kingdom. So the 1,000 years that are described in Revelation chapter 20 are not taken to be literal, but just a symbolic reference. So they would interpret the first resurrection to be a spiritual resurrection, and then the second resurrection ends the age when we are resurrected physically taken to be with the lord and this is uh, this precedes all resurrections and judgments and then eternity so there's no future tribulation at all there's no future rapture there's just the end of the age where we're uh, translated to be with the lord and that's it now if you have this view of prophecy are you even going to think about when the rapture is going to occur in relation to the tribulation no, because you don't have a tribulation. And see it's this view that dominated church history from about the late third century up to the mid mid sixteenth century, from the late two hundred fifties to three hundred, up through the uh, late fifteen hundreds, because they weren't operating on a literal interpretation of Scripture. The early church fathers in the First century, of course, the writers of Scripture, second century, third century, and some into the fourth century still held to a literal interpretation of Scripture. And so they took the thousand years as literal and that Jesus would return before he established his kingdom. But there were folks then as now who distort prophecy and they began to teach a somewhat... um, uh, a, a somewhat fleshly oriented view of the kingdom, not unlike what we would uh, connect to an Islamic view of paradise and so this this earthly kingdom was a time of uh, of tremendous uh, physical pleasure, and that's how it was portrayed so one of the early church theologians by the name of Augustine, who was Bishop of Hippo, rejected premillennialism because of its abuses, not because of the biblical position. And as a result of that, amillennialism became the institutionalized prophetic view of the Roman Catholic Church, and that dominates the Middle Ages. So nobody's thinking in terms of literal interpretation of prophecy for over 1,200 years. No one. It's all amillennialism, all prophecy spiritualized. Israel is now the church. Uh, the uh, the promised land is now heaven. All of this is part and parcel of amillennialism. Now, after the Reformation, there came a development within covenant theology of another view called postmillennialism. This came in the 1700s. excuse me, 1600s in the 17th century. And this is the view that the church would eventually bring in the Messianic kingdom. Technically, they would say, God the Holy Spirit is going to bring about a gradual increase in the number of believers and the influence of the church so that by the end of the church age, Christianity will dominate all cultures and the kingdom will come in. And then after that occurs, uh, Jesus Christ uh, returns, so the second coming of Christ comes at the end of the uh, at the end of the church age, at the end of the kingdom. It is after the millennium, but once again, the thousand years are not viewed as as literal literal years. This really lends itself to a utopian view that somehow and always gets mixed up with some sort of view that the church is bringing in. Uh, the Kingdom and ends up in some sort of of uh, militancy at times it 's also the view that undergirds, even though there are many Pentecostal charismatics who do not believe who who say they believe in dispensationalism, but the whole idea that there's a great end time revival that must come before Jesus comes back is inherent to this whole view, and that 's what all charismatic theology is based on that 's just kind of a side note to show you how. These different views of prophecy affect different areas of theology. So those are the three broad schemes. Premillennialism, Christ comes back before the millennium. There's no literal millennium. We're in the kingdom now. It's a spiritualized kingdom. And then things just end with the second coming of Christ. Postmillennialism, the church brings in the kingdom. We go into this uh, utopic state. And then Jesus Christ returns. Those are the three broad views. Now, within premillennialism, there are different views about the rapture. So we have to become used to this vocabulary. Pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill has to do with the relationship of the second coming to the millennium, whereas the rapture views have to do with the relationship of Christ coming for the church to the seven-year period known as the tribulation, seven years of judgments on the earth. Okay, we're in the present church age, so the pre-trib rapture view states that the rapture will occur before the tribulation and will include all believers, carnal believers, spiritual believers, baby believers, mature believers. All believers will be immediately taken to be with the Lord in the air. This is followed at some point by the seven-year tribulation and then the millennium. Second view is the partial rapture view. This This is the view that there are and sometimes multiple raptures, that spiritual Christians get raptured at the end of the church age, but carnal Christians, immature Christians, uh, have to go through the tribulation. So this view is defined as the view that only those faithful, totally dedicated Christians will be caught up, leaving carnal Christians behind to be chastened by the tribulation. That's the partial rapture view. Then we have the mid-trib rapture view. Everybody getting confused yet? The pre-trib, partial-trib, mid-trib. This is what I mean. It's obvious. It's in the middle of the tribulation that the, all believers, church-age believers, will be forced to endure the first three and a half years of wrath, but then when we get into the most intense form of the tribulation, we will be removed. This is the mid-trib rapture view. Honestly, this is a uh, not a large number of people have held this view over the years, but a new view came along about 15 years ago, called the pre wrath view, and this was the idea that the wrath of God is poured out most intensely during the last quarter or so of the of the tribulation. So this is sort of a three-quarter rapture view, and uh, th- which is similar to the uh, the mid-trib view. But I mention it simply because some people are aware of it, and every now and then somebody asks me about it. So this is the pre-wrath view. And these views all forget the fact that the wrath of the Lamb is poured out, as we'll see in Revelation 6 and 7. The wrath of the Lamb gets poured out on the earth from the very beginning of the tribulation. So why would the bride of Christ receive the wrath of her groom just before the wedding? or like beating your fiance up on the way to the uh, marriage ceremony not a good model post trib view post trib rapture is that all believers go through the tribulation and the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation forcing all believers to endure the entire 7 year period now we're going to get to something before I'm done and I forgot to warn the AV crew but you're going to need to be able to pan out to get the whole stage when we get there. So just be prepared, whatever you have to do. Problems with post-trib. Problems with the post-trib view. First of all, believers are subject to the time of wrath, as I just uh, mentioned. This would mean that church-age believers, the bride of Christ, are subject to the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God during the tribulation period. Uh, this is, the term wrath of God is a term that is used in several passages for, as a technical term for the extreme judgments that come upon the earth during the tribulation period. This is not talking about divine discipline upon believers. This is talking about divine judgment on the earth. And as I pointed out earlier throughout the book of Revelation, it's, it, the object are the earth dwellers which is almost a synonymous term in Revelation for those who are unbelievers in the tribulation period. Post-trib has really an express elevator trip. Jesus comes back, we pop up, and come right down with him. It's sort of like a reverse yo-yo. On his way down, we pop up and come back down with him. We don't go to heaven with him, which is what John 14, 1 through 3 indicates, that Jesus said that where I am, there you may be also. That is, in heaven, according to the context of John 14, 1 through 3. The third problem is that the Antichrist has to appear before Jesus Christ. According to uh, Titus 2.18, we're looking for the blessed hope of the appearance of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's preceded by anything, then that's what we're to be looking for. And if the Antichrist is going to appear before Jesus Christ, then we should be looking for the Antichrist so that we can then be prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. The Antichrist is not going to appear until after the rapture occurs, despite the fact that there's been this announcement here in the weekly world news that the Antichrist is here and Jesus is coming to stop him. It's always amusing to pick those up at the local grocery store. Fourth reason that the tribulation can't occur at the end of the rapture is uh, populating the millennium. Populating the millennium. I think somehow this slide got uh, redone in the reboot that occurred. Um, Populating the millennium. Let me explain what I mean by this. I need some helpers up here. Okay, Chris, you come up here. Ike, you come up here. And uh, come on up. We need to have one lady in here, so we'll get y'all all up here. Ike, why? You don't want to be raptured, do you? Gee. Okay, we're going to run this like a timeline from the present to the future. So, everybody get over here. <laughs> no, we're going to have beauty comes first. Okay, Kristen, you're going to be a believer. Okay, you're a church-age believer. Now, you are an unbeliever, and Ike, you're an unbeliever. You and Chris are both, both unbelievers. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to march forward in time, and certain things are going to take place. Now, first of all, I'm going to show you how things would occur according to a post-trib rapture view, okay? So, we go through time, and all of a sudden, the kind of walk with me here, just slow steps, and all of a sudden, the Antichrist appears. Now, we know we're in the tribulation period, and don't stand on my cord, please. <laughs> now, Kristen is still a believer, and now Chris, as he here starts witnessing all these judgments, somebody witnesses to him, one of the 144,000, and he becomes a believer. And Ike here is an unbeliever. He didn't want to be raptured. He took a time getting up here, so he's an unbeliever. He'll get his punishment. Okay, now we go through the tribulation. We hit the mid-trib period. We go all the way through the tribulation. And now we come to the end of the tribulation. Jesus is coming back. Remember, it's a post-trib viewpoint, which means the rapture comes at the end of the tribulation. So, Kristen gets raptured. Chris gets raptured. And they're going to get new bodies, right? Resurrection bodies. And Ike, well, he's going to go off to... Torments. He goes off to punishment. Now the millennium is going to begin. Who's left to populate the millennium? No one. So according to the pre-trib view, now everybody get back over here. We're going to walk through it one more time. On the pre-trib view, we come along, just walk through time, and the rapture occurs suddenly. Kristen's taken up to be with the rapture. They go into the tribulation. Chris gets saved. Ike is still an unbeliever. We go all the way through the, the tribulation. Jesus comes back. Chris has managed to survive through the whole tribulation period. Ike is going to be taken in judgment. And Chris is going to be able to go into the millennial kingdom with a physical mortal body. He's going to be able to marry and have children and populate the millennium. Okay? That's it. Y'all did good. (laughs) That's what I mean by populating the millennium. I saw Dr. Ryrie do that in Chafer Chapel at Dallas Seminary about 30 years ago. And you can have sophisticated exegetical arguments, and you can have great theological arguments, but to me, that just speaks volumes. You'll never forget it. So... There's no one left to populate the millennium on a post-trib viewpoint. Fifth, the rapture then is equivalent to the second coming according to a post-trib viewpoint. They're not distinguishable events. Okay, now let's look at one more thing in terms of introduction to how people view prophecy. The first thing we looked at was that people view prophecy in terms of the millennium. You have premillennialism amillennialism and postmillennialism and some wag is going to say well what about panmillennialism you know these are the folks that think everything's going to pan out in the end so why study prophecy (laughs) then we have your view of the rapture the relationship of the rapture of the church to the tribulation is it before the tribulation do only some believers get raptured and others get left behind uh, is there a mid-trib rapture, or does it occur at the end of the tribulation? Now, one more thing, and that is how you view prophecy in its relationship to history. This has become uh, very important in recent years, as some views that were thought to have died out of, uh, a couple of decades ago are now back in vogue. Basic approaches to prophecy... This is a timeline of the church age. We have the cross here on the left, the ascension of Christ, then we have the church age. Uh, the, uh, over here we have uh, 70, eighty seventy marked by a vertical line indicating the judgment on Israel and the destruction of the second temple. By the way, yesterday was, according to the Jewish calendar, the ninth of Tishri. And according to... Jewish tradition which is fairly well substantiated it was on the ninth of Tishri that the second temple was destroyed by the tenth legion uh, of the the Roman tenth legion under Titus which uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed the temple was destroyed and Israel went out under the fifth cycle of discipline at the end of the fir- what's called the first Jewish revolt that took place between 66 and 70. The interesting thing is that most Jewish scholars believe that it was also on the ninth of Tishri that the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. It's interesting how God sticks to a pretty strict timetable. But all of those things together with the war going on you always have people coming out with uh, interesting speculations. Okay, basic approaches to prophecy. We have the whole church age ends with the rapture of the church. Then we have the period here of the tribulation period, Christ's second coming, and then the millennial kingdom. That just orients you to the chart. The first view that we're going to discuss here is called preterism, a term that's not on most people's vocabulary, and it's simply a Latin word meaning past. And if you think of these three views as simply past, present, and future, then you've got it down. Preterism is the view that all prophecy was fulfilled by 70 A.D., that all the language in Matthew chapter 24 and in Revelation 4 through 19 is simply symbolic language related to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 and Israel's being taken out in judgment. And there are a few elements, in, for example, Revelation 20 and 21 that would be uh, yet future. So this is the view known as preterism, and there's a number of popular radio Bible teachers now that are, have shifted to a preterist uh, viewpoint. One of them is a man named R.C. Sproul. And it is cons- most consistent with a covenant and uh, post mill uh, viewpoint. Then you have a view known as historicism. And the shaded area indicates that, that prophecy is being filled throughout that time period. So that we could lay the book of Revelation on its side in Revelation 4 would be uh, the early church and maybe Revelation uh, uh, 6 through 9 the first seal judgments would be the middle ages and then the trumpet judgments would come after that and then now we're in the period approaching Armageddon in the bowl judgments in historicism you try to go into these passages and find out where we are today in light of this panorama of biblical prophecy that prophecy is being fulfilled throughout the church age. That is historicism. You see dispensationalists inconsistently act like historicists when they try to identify... When the rapture is going to occur. How Lindsay did this in late great planet Earth. He made it seem as if, because of his interpretation of this generation in Matthew 24, that this generation would not pass away until all these things happened. That the generation that saw the return of the, of the control of Jerusalem to the Jews in 1967, that that generation would not pass away until, and he defined a generation as 40 years would not pass away until until uh, the rapture occurred. And so if you just added 40 for a generation to 1967, you came up with, with 2007, and so the rapture would have to occur by 2001. Or if the time clock began with uh, 1948 and you added 40 to 1948 and came up with 1988, then the rapture would have to occur seven years before that by 1981. So even though he didn't really date set, he did date set. And date setting is is consistent with historicism, but not dispensationalism, because we believe that the rapture could occur at any time it's a uh, non-sign event. And that, and that's one of the things that made dispensationalism uh, attractive in the 19th century. Is you had all kinds of people running around saying, Jesus is coming back next year, and they would go put on their white sheets and go stand on the nearest mountain and wait for Jesus to come back. And that was all a product of historicist interpretation. We believe in futurism, that passages like Matthew 24 And Revelation 4 through 19 are yet to be fulfilled. These describe events that will take place in the future. So when you hear me refer to preterism, now that you know. Uh, approximately what that means, or historicism, or futurism. And I'll use this slide again and again because not everybody thinks in terms of this vocabulary. As we get closer and closer to dealing with the futurist parts of Revelation, Revelation 4 and following, we need to become a little more familiar with this vocabulary. Okay, the Pre-Trib Rapture Doctrine is based on several critical It is the culmination of certain theological uh, conclusions. The foundation is literal interpretation. That we believe the Bible should be interpreted in its normal, plain sense. Literal meaning. Literal doesn't mean we don't believe in figures of speech. We read the Psalms or you read uh, Song of Solomon where uh, Solomon describes his lover as having children. Temp, uh, her temples are like palm granites her hair is like goats descending Mount Gilead and her her neck is like the Tower of David I once had a cartoon of that that somebody had, had drawn literally so we believe these are figures of speech and that they should be understood in terms of the normal everyday language. And so when, uh, he describes his lovers having hair like goats descending from Mount Gilead, he's talking about it's full, it's rich, it's flowing. Her t- neck is like the Tower of David. It is statuesque. It is stately. It is, it indicates that she is someone of, of great poise. So we would interpret these figures in a, in a normal usage that does not violate literal interpretation now there's a threefold i used to call this a a three-legged stool that the pre-trib rapture is based on if you don't have these three legs on your stool what's going to happen your stool is going to fall over it won't even exist you can't you can't make it work and historically Unless these three elements were there, nobody thought in terms of a pre-trib rapture. Now, the reason I say that is because uh, we probably won't get to to a lot of this until next time, but that for years there are people antagonistic to the pre-trib rapture who will come out and say, all you Christians want to do is escape uh, God's discipline on the world, and you're just a bunch of escapists, or or you're just fascinated with Armageddon and and all these different things. And they say, you know, the pre-trib rapture really wasn't invented until the 19th century it's new therefore it must be wrong well there's a number of reasons why we why we can show that it really isn't new john uh, nelson darby who was the first theologian in uh, history to really systematize dispensationalism in the pre-trib rapture was not the first person we can say now to to write or talk about a pre trib rapture, we have evidence of a number of other people. For example, Daniel Morgan, who was the founder of Brown University, a Baptist pastor, uh, spoke and wrote on a pre trib rapture in the early 1700s. And then there was a, a Syrian monk by the name of uh, uh, Pseudo Ephraim, and he wrote about a pre trib rapture in the 5th century. So that takes us all the way back to the early church. So Darby was not the first, but he's the first in modern history because people weren't thinking in terms of a futuristic view of prophecy. And so the first element you have to have in place is premillennialism. If you're not thinking premillennially that Jesus is going to return before the millennium, then you're not going to be at all concerned about the tribulation or, or when the rapture occurs in relation to the tribulation. Because neither post nor amillennialism deal with a seven-year tribulation. So, you, so for all that period of church history when no one was thinking uh, in terms of premillennialism, no one was thinking about when the rapture would occur from roughly 300 to 1600. Then you have futurism has to be in place. Futurism has to be in place. The idea that these prophecies haven't been fulfilled, they are yet to be fulfilled. So we have to think futuristically regarding the prophecies. And then, third, there has to be an understanding of a distinction between Israel and the church. And for much of the church age, in, under amillennialism, the church was viewed as a replacement to Israel. And so they had spiritualized the promises to, uh, to Israel to make them apply. To the church. Now there's other elements that are built upon that foundation. The first is a contrast between the comings, that there's a distinction between the rapture of the church and the second coming. For example, the rapture is Jesus comes in the clouds, at the second coming, he comes to the earth. At the rapture, he comes for the bride, at the second coming, he comes with the bride. At the rapture, he comes for the church to take us to heaven. At the second coming, he comes to the earth in, uh, to rescue Israel. Therefore, there must be an interval between the comings, an interval between the comings. They can't be the same event. The third, we believe in imminency that the Bible teaches that Christ could come at any moment. So therefore, no signs indicate the rapture. Uh, then the nature of the tribulation, that it is for I- for Israel, it's centered on Israel, Israel is a focal point during the tribulation period, and the judgments during the tribulation are such that the church would not be here. The nature of the church is another aspect. The, because of the nature and purpose of the church, uh, we do not uh, see a role of the church in the tribulation period. And then the work of the Holy Spirit... 2 Thessalonians 2 says that the, the restrainer will be removed before the Antichrist is revealed, and the restrainer is a reference to God the Holy Spirit. The result of all this is that a study of these things is a practical motivation for spiritual growth, evangelism, and missions. And in the last 200 years, as this has been taught more and more, it has stimulated uh, missions especially to Jews and it is only out of dispensationalism that many of these Jewish ministries for example Friends of Israel, Jews for Jesus, a number of other Jewish ministries evangelistic ministries, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's Ariel ministries all are based on dispensationalism and as a result of that uh, uh, thousands of Jews have come to understand Jesus as the Messiah This sets us up for our understanding and answer to the question of when will the rapture occur. And we will come back next time and get into uh, seven reasons why the rapture must occur before the tribulation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to come together to be encouraged by this study of Scripture to gain a greater understanding of what the Bible teaches about future things, about the last days, that we might be encouraged and strengthened in our own spiritual life, that we might understand more fully what it means to anticipate, look forward to that blessed hope of the coming of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ came in fulfillment of hundreds of biblical prophecies. He came to the earth. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born of a virgin. He went to the cross. He died for our sins. He was the fulfillment of the imagery of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Father, we pray uh, recognize that there is salvation in no other name under, other than in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith alone in Christ alone, this is your opportunity to do so, to trust in Him, to put your faith alone in Him, and at that instant you will have eternal salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us, encourage us, strengthen us, stimulate us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.